The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. Two guests today. In the first half of today's show, I'll be speaking with the writer Melissa Jira Grant about her article in The New Republic, Sarah Everard, and the useless generality of male violence. We talked about the importance of not seeing Wayne Cousins' role as a police officer as merely incidental to the murder of Everard, and we also talked about why carceral feminist approaches that seek to combat male violence through the police and the courts are doomed to fail. In the second part of today's show, I spoke with writer and activist Shadeen Taylor-Stone about her recent article in Navarra Media, People are waking up to the horrors of police brutality, it's time to build a movement. We talked about the social media reaction to the initial vigil for Sarah Everard on Clapham Common, and how the struggle against police violence and violence against women in general requires the building of a mass movement of collective struggle that cuts across different identities. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon, and also by Haymarket Books, who have lots of excellent titles that may be of interest to PTO listeners. One that you might like to check out is We Do This Till We Free Us by Mariam Carber. More people are discussing prison abolition today than ever before. Awareness that prisons, policing and the criminal punishment system are racist, oppressive and ineffective is growing. What if social transformation and liberation isn't about waiting for someone else to come along and save us? What if ordinary people have the power to collectively free ourselves? In We Do This Till We Free Us, organiser and educator Mariam Kaba reflects on the deep work of abolition and transformative political struggle. We Do This Till We Free Us, Abolitionist Organising and Transformative Justice is out now from Haymarket Books. UK readers can purchase the book from bookshop.org. And now to today's first interview. Melissa Jira Grant is a staff writer at The New Republic and the author of Playing the Whore, The Work of Sex Work. Her writing has appeared in The Guardian, The Nation and The Atlantic, amongst other venues. So obviously when I contacted you to arrange this conversation, the plan was to talk solely really about your article in The New Republic on the murder of Sarah Everard and the reaction to her killing. But today a man named Robert Long was arrested for the murder of eight people at massage parlours in Atlanta, Georgia in the United States. Seven of the people he killed were women. Six of those women were of Asian descent. On Twitter earlier today, you commented that although we don't know enough about what happened yet, you said that it's clear to me already that we can't divorce pervasive violence against sex workers, including moral panics about massage businesses from this story. So I wonder if you could say something about such moral panics and how they serve to endanger sex workers. Yeah, I've done some reporting for several years now, including with my reporting partner, Emma Whitford on so this increased criminalization of massage parlors, which usually in the US are are staffed by Asian immigrant workers, sometimes undocumented folks. 
And the moral panic is not necessarily kind of a sex panic as we might normally think of it. You know, it's not like these are salacious businesses. They don't frame it that way. They frame it in terms of helping women. And they say that, you know, sending police into these businesses to protect these women is the right thing to do. And policing, you know, just sends the message to the community that what's going on in this place is undesirable, immoral, dangerous even. I went to some community forums in Queens in New York, and which is where a lot of massage businesses are concentrated. And, you know, that's the rhetoric that you hear from the police. It's the rhetoric you hear from social services agencies. And so it, it creates this image, I think, that just reinforces the racist stereotypes we already have about Asian women, that they are over-sexualized, they're helpless. It just serves to send this message that this is a group of people that if you're violent towards them, you know, we've already regarded them as disposable in a way, even if we're saying we have to swoop in and protect these women. That's just another way of saying that they don't have agency and that we know what's right. My fear is that this man who was arrested in Atlanta, like other men who have targeted sex workers and mass killings, they're usually one by one in over years. I'm thinking of one in particular, Gary Leon Ridgway, who for more than a decade targeted dozens of women who either were sex workers or he thought they were. And when he was finally arrested, he told the police that he thought he was doing their job for them of cleaning up the streets. So that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about that sort of pervasive violence that, you know, we essentially permit when we when we criminalize sex work. And, you know, we're saying that this group of people are going to be denied the protection of the police because they're committing a crime. That form of criminalisation, to what extent in the United States does that divide the feminist movement? Because obviously in the UK, there is certainly a split over this issue. Oh, I, I remember very clearly from when I was over in 2014 promoting my book about sex work called Playing the Whore. And I landed right in the middle of debates about the Nordic model, which apparently are back on the table again with the crime bill. I saw there was an attempt at the last minute to insert more criminalisation of sex work in this larger policing bill. And I think the logic there is somewhat like the logic we see in the US, which is this, what we could call carceral feminism, this idea that the arm of the state, including the carceral state, can be turned into the service of women's rights and gender justice. And to the extent that you believe that, you may even think that you're sex positive, you might even say, I don't judge sex workers. But if you believe that you can use the police for feminist ends, you are probably somebody who thinks it's completely appropriate to criminalize people who buy sex or the businesses where that happens, which de facto criminalizes people who sell sex. And that, I think, as at least in the States anyway, as we've become more critical of what policing and criminalization mean, particularly in the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement, I've seen that shift quite dramatically. And it's not that those attitudes aren't there anymore, those kind of carceral feminist attitudes, but they are meeting a very loud and very passionate challenge from young people, from activists, from Black and queer communities. Like This is now like a much broader and more complicated conversation than just sort of like the stereotypical feminist sex wars that people might think it is. So moving on to the article you wrote for The New Republic. So in that article, you emphasise the importance of naming Wayne Cousins, the man charged with killing Sarah Everard. And you also emphasise the importance of not seeing the fact that Cousins is a police officer as being incidental to Everard's death. Of course, many people will take the view that Cousins' job is not so relevant to the murder, given that plenty of men doing all sorts of jobs perpetrate violence against women. So could you explain why you disagree with those who do see the fact of Cousins being a police officer as a merely incidental fact? I can't think, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, there are that many other jobs other than law enforcement and the military where people are legally permitted to kill other people, where that is their job, where violence is the job. And that's the difference. This is police in their regular duties are empowered to 
perform state-sanctioned violence. And particularly when, you know, we're talking about women who, you know, are supposed to look to police for protection, like, Women know that police aren't there to protect us, if we're really being honest. You know, we can't take for granted that police are going to believe us. We can't take for granted that police are actually going to want to protect us. And that's because police hold such great power over us. That's why it's it's different, you know. I mean, there, there are other cases where people, men in positions of power, abuse that power. You know, whether we're talking about Harvey Weinstein, whether we're talking about these coaches who abuse young women who were their... Um, the athletes that they were coaching, whether we're talking about doctors, there's lots of times when men can abuse their power against women in a professional context where women are very vulnerable to them because of that. But policing is very different because police almost never get charged with murder when they kill someone on duty. Almost never. In the United States, in the last 20 years, there's something like less than 10 who've been charged with murder for doing that. And even if they're charged, very, very few are convicted. So... That's the difference. We basically said that this group of people can get away with murder for their job because when they kill someone, it's not murder. It's their professional purview. And that point about, as you say, women knowing that police are not there to protect them, presumably the extent to which that is known differs quite considerably around race and class. Yeah, I think it's inseparable from that. You know, most of when we talk about like things in the US, like quality of life policing or stop and frisk or stop and search you know, where we've essentially granted police the power to perform constant surveillance, usually targeting communities of color, low-income communities, immigrant communities. You know, it's very hard for me then to think about how you're supposed to turn around and look to those people to provide you with safety. So we're being told on the one hand, officers are out there arresting women that they think are engaged in sex work in order to, what exactly? Like, arresting somebody is a form of violence that isn't actually going to help them. And there's a continuum from that to, a woman who is facing sexual violence from someone else in her life and calls on the police for help and has to actually think because of her race, because of her immigration status, how she herself might be treated as the criminal in that situation. So one of the apparent consequences of the police violence against people who joined the vigil and protest in in Clapham Common in London has been to highlight how little use it is in terms of women's safety for there to be women in in high-ranking positions in the state and the police, since, of course, we have in the UK at the moment a woman home secretary in Preeti Patel and Cressida Dick in charge of the Metropolitan Police in London. Why, in your opinion, is is it a mistake to expect having women in these roles to have much impact in reducing violence against women? There's two sort of vectors. One, which we've talked about already, right, which is this kind of carceral feminist vector of power and how power is abused. I'm not saying that Priti Patel nor the, the head of the Met believe that they are doing some kind of feminism in the job that they're doing. What I'm saying is that, you know, that is the context in which they are sort of being celebrated as women doing their jobs. I don't know if they've backed off of this, but there was a statement that reclaimed this, these streets put out saying like, well, we were hesitant to pile on to the woman head of the Met because, you know, we didn't want to, you know, engage in sort of some misogynist pylon. It seems like they've also come to realize in the following days that she's not necessarily going to to take their concerns seriously. You know, just because you're a woman doesn't necessarily mean you care about violence against women, let alone that you can turn the gears of the institution that you work in to do anything about it. You know, we're not seeing that will there. And, you know, on the one hand, I think we can say like, well, they should be doing more. But I think that the more accurate thing to say is this institution is actually violent. 
And that was so apparent in the response to the vigil and the protests, right? This is all that they have to offer, even when they're supposedly there for like protection, even when they're supposedly there because of COVID or whatever they said that they had to be out there to crush that protest for. If an institution is fundamentally violent, then turning to it to ask it to address violence against women is a losing strategy to begin with. So having a woman at the top of that doesn't necessarily change that at all. Yes. And do you think it would be fair to say that in some respects, choosing to take up those positions rather than those people taking up those roles and and then acting in solidarity with women, it's much more likely that by the act of taking that position in that violent institution, that that's effectively signaling that they have no intention really of doing very much along those lines. Yeah, I mean, and if anything, they could be there in sort of like a counter feminist move, right? Like, it's very easy to sort of like celebrate these powerful women, and to use that to try to say, no, 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 your 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 concerns and your critiques about, you know, violence, misogyny, and the institution of policing, it's used to sort of like neutralize those or attempt to, I think people are becoming a lot more critical about that, and not just accepting, you know, having a woman or having a person of color, you know, having a, a black police officer is somehow going to make policing anti-racist, for example, you know, it's it's very powerful image. I understand why people believe that they can change these institutions from within. I just don't think evidence is on their side. Going back to that point about carceral feminism. So in the UK media, particularly the conservative press, but also in some liberal venues, we've seen a lot of talk about trying to solve the problem of male violence through tougher sentencing, increased numbers of police, which was the Labour leader, Keir Starmer's extraordinarily tone-deaf initial response. And then journalists such as Caitlin Moran in The Times, and at least one politician have called for a curfew for men. What's your opinion? Do you see any value in any of those kinds of positions? I'm particularly thinking about the latter one regarding the idea of a curfew targeted at men rather than uh, women, which is the more typical thing that we see. I mean, it's sort of like the Nordic model for curfews, right? I mean, at the end of the day, it's sort of like, well, we're going to police the men. We should, you know, we're, we're spending all of our energy policing women and scrutinizing women's behavior. And let's like turn that on the men. It doesn't seem all that different to me from people who say that, you know, no, 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 we're not going to arrest sex workers. We're just going to arrest the men who go to them. And we understand that that creates a dangerous situation for women who are engaged in the sex trades because it means that there's going to be more police paying attention to their activities. I don't think there's a way that you can have a curfew on men that doesn't somehow ultimately blow back on on women. But also you're asking an institution of surveillance and violence, state-sanctioned violence, to to somehow intervene in violence against women. You know, I, I don't think that this can be solved also on the level of like changing individual men's behavior. I think that that's clearly that is not what's going on here. I think there are probably what is happening here in the particular case of if if it is this this officer who did murder Sarah Everard. He is somebody who could look around him and think that he would probably get away with this. You know, there are, there are some reports, right, that he may have been engaged in other misconduct in the past. And it's endemic in police departments that even when police are engaged in misconduct, including sexual misconduct, which in the U.S. is the second most common form of police misconduct, they get away with it over and over again. Internal affairs doesn't take it seriously. The reports of people coming forward aren't taken seriously. So this is somebody who believes an institution will protect them. And that's a much more thorny problem to solve than let's put some undercover cops in a club or <laughs> let's send some cops out to trail men home from pubs. Like, I, I don't understand sort of why any solution that puts more power in the hands of police can do anything about police violence, which is what this is. It's not just male violence, right? And we, this, as far as we can tell right now, based on the charges that have been brought, that would be an accurate thing to say. You know, this is what looks like a case of police violence. And we certainly see police violence in response to the women who've risen, rose up against it. So I, I just, I don't understand why we should believe that the people who are harming us can protect us. 
if that kind of carceral feminist approach is not going to be useful, and if we are clearly in a situation where we have to accept the prevailing social conditions in the most abstract sense, you know, and the fact that we're living in a capitalist society where many would argue that sexism is, is constitutive of that, what can be done to reduce male violence in this context, do you think? I mean, I think we have to break it up into some more specific parts. You know, I mean, there's interpersonal violence, right? There's state violence. There's violence that we may face at work. There's violence that we face within our families. And there is no sort of one size fits all solution so long as as women are subordinate, so long as women are seen as unbelievable. I think asking police to sort of step into that situation and, and diffuse it, that is not necessarily going to diffuse the situation. In some cases, it makes it even worse. And yet we continue to sort of default to asking police to solve these problems. Like even when, you know, the, the, the aggressor isn't a police officer, like the idea of like bringing somebody with a gun into your home when someone is violent towards you, why would you want to do that? Why would you want to introduce the possibility of more violence into that space? We have to think about other ways and other people that we can rely on to reduce violence and to reduce the possibilities of violence. And that is basically everything that happens outside of the state for the most part, right? We're talking about community-based organizations. We're talking about people even just getting to know their neighbors and having a sense of who should be out on the streets and who isn't and who is familiar rather than seeing a stranger and calling the cops to deal with them. It's not, as many abolitionists have been arguing, you know, like we shouldn't be expected to sort of deliver this abolitionist future in which we have all these mechanisms of support and safety in order to start reducing the violence of policing. And that these are actually solutions that we're going to have to find together. They're about strengthening people's relationships. They're about strengthening the power that we have in our own lives, in our own communities. And that is a process. It's not like an off-the-shelf sort of think tank produced solution. It's going to take actually taking a risk here and, you know, thinking about what our lives could look like if we didn't always rely on the state to save us from violence. Would there also be a role for violence in terms of self-defense as well? I mean, do you mean the the ways that, you know, right now for people, particularly women, and they're facing violence from men or other kinds of gender-based violence that they are themselves criminalized for fighting back? Yes, precisely. Yeah, the, the latter, yeah. Yeah, I think that that is also a result of, you know, not believing women, not valuing women. You know, one of the community guides and frameworks for thinking about this that comes out of groups like Interrupting Criminalization and the work of, of scholars and activists like Miriam Kaba, you know, she talks about this idea that Black women have no self to defend. And so it's not even think about sort of, you know, rolling back any particular laws. It's about creating value and saying, no, like you're, this person actually is a person. This person has a right to bodily autonomy, to safety, to dignity. And that is something that's also raised and classed. And it isn't necessarily just about quote unquote male violence or violence against women. You know, when you look at who's in prisons in the United States, when you look at women in prisons and how many of them are survivors of violence and abuse, it's much deeper, I think, than just, you know, giving women the legal right to self-defense. You know, we know in the case, for example, of Marissa Alexander, who tried to escape her abuser by firing a shot into the ceiling. This is in the same state in which George Zimmerman was able to fire a shot into Trayvon Martin and kill him in alleged self-defense. Marissa Alexander went to prison. It took years to get her out, to fight for her to get out in a state where supposedly, you know, she had the right to stand her ground and defend herself. So it's it requires going outside the law, I think, to solve that. Going back to the specific case of Sarah Everard, so 
Obviously, no one would want to, well, I say that, <laughs> I think on the left, no one would want to suggest that her death isn't deserving of a great deal of attention. But of course, we know that it's the kind of violence against women that is perhaps most likely to receive media attention. So we know that most violence against women is perpetrated not by strangers, but by men they know, that most violence takes place in the home, the very place where the Metropolitan Police were telling women to stay in the wake of Everard's disappearance. And we also know the extent of media attention is shaped by where acts of violence occur, who the perpetrators are, who the victims are. And of course, those factors are all shaped by race and class. So how do you think we can usefully talk about that disparity in attention that there is in a way that doesn't seem to downplay the significance of the death of someone like Sarah? I was thinking of all those first responses, even before there was an arrest and Sarah's murder, that were just like, she was just walking alone. Or she was doing everything right, rather. You know, you saw what she was walking alone at night. You know, she was doing everything she should do to protect herself. She was wearing bright clothes. She talked to her boyfriend on the phone. There's this desire to sort of prove that somebody is a worthy victim. And I think dismantling that actually goes a decent ways towards dismantling some of the racist assumptions about gender-based violence. And you know, because what is that doing, right? That's about recovering her innocence, which is also, you know, always inseparable from, in this case, whiteness. And I think that's part of the reaction too. like, well, here's this like, quote, unquote, perfect white woman, who was murdered, allegedly by a stranger to her, as far as we know. And that's a spectacular sort of story. It, it fits a certain kind of trope that when we know that most gender-based violence actually happens amongst people who know one another, sometimes even very intimately, that's a lot harder story to tell, where it requires people to sort of look around their own lives and, and not think about, you know, doing everything right when they're walking home at night, because the violence could be there to meet them at home. So I think being very honest about that too, right, about the places where violence is, is actually more likely. But I do think there's a possibility here in naming this as police violence, or what is apparently police violence, and certainly we're seeing a response to women activists in the form of police violence, that that also starts to get us out of this very sort of passive frame of, you know, a woman who is preyed upon by a stranger in this spectacular way, and very unlikely and unusual way also. And I know there was some pushback to some members of law enforcement who said, like, this doesn't happen all that often, and they're not wrong. But that doesn't let them off the hook either, right? This isn't to say that they were saying that in good faith, because I don't think that they were either. I think they were trying to play public relations cleanup, right? That's why we saw them do things like go around and reportedly tell women to, to stay home. And it's complicated. You know, I think that there's lots of different vectors here by which we judge people's status as a victim and how much their life matters and what happens to them matters. But I think getting sort of outside of the individual and into the systems of power here, which the police, that's why I think the putting this on the police is important for multiple levels. You know, why, even if this was a stranger, you know, like, why did this happen? Like, what, you know, how many CCTV cameras do you have? <laughs> like, how many people should have been out on the streets? Like, you know, what does it say about the status of women when this can still, this very spectacular and sort of unusual form of violence is, is still with us? And I think that, it is tempting to say, and I think it's accurate to say in some ways that like, well, of course, this is the story that's getting all this attention, not the black women in particular, who, from what we know, police have not only ignored violence against them, but, you know, even mocked them, took selfies with them, you know, like, this is absolutely right and fair to point out. And I think the sort of bridge that we might see here, and I see this, you know, so clearly in groups like Sisters Uncut, is to say that this isn't just about sort of abstract male violence, this is about male violence and police violence and where they come together. And we actually all have 
a lot of stakes in that. And if it is true that this was a police officer who murdered a white woman, the kind of person who usually gets this kind of sympathy in ways that black women and other women of color do not, what does that say then? You know, I've, I've been reporting for several years now about a woman named Donna Dalton, who's a white sex worker who was killed by a police officer in Columbus, Ohio. And the officer who murdered her was the first officer to be charged with murder for 20 years in that county. Prosecutors there just, you know, never brought murder charges. They said they didn't think in most cases officers did anything wrong. But now we have a white victim, and in this case, a black officer. And, you know, I've also talked to families there who have sons who've been killed by police, all of them black, who the officers involved in those cases were not charged. And yet there is sort of this conversation opening up now between those families about what does it mean that you know, you brought charges in the case of this white victim, but not for my son. And, you know, I've seen these women supporting each other out in rallies and activist spaces. Like, this is like a bridgeable, it could be a bridgeable moment if people want to be very honest about the violence that we've turned our backs to wrongly and, and why people are showing up now. And also not rank victims one against the other. On that point regarding all that language around, as you say, Sarah Everard was described as doing all the right things, doing what she was supposed to do, calling her boyfriend to let him know where she would be and all this kind of thing. I mean, I was struck reading that by the very paternalistic character to that. And it reminded me of that very obvious point that patriarchy is the rule of fathers rather than just men. It's also about that kind of paternalistic thing. I don't know if, you, if that was something that occurred to you as well and if you had any thoughts on that. I think that's part of it, you know, and I, I haven't been following closely enough to see what various MPs are saying, but I wouldn't be surprised if there were men, including men in the Labour Party who are saying things like, what if this was my daughter? You know, like as if like you can only relate to women as if they were your, your child, your daughter. Yes. And this is a woman in her 30s, of course. Right. It's, it's infantilizing. It's paternalistic. And it's also to put women in this sort of separate category where it's like, you know, I as this case, if this is where the rhetoric is coming from, an MP or a police officer, you're already in a position of power <laughs> over over women. So why are you even having to sort of go a step further and, and, and analogize them to your daughter? It's really gross and it's really widespread. And, you know, what does it say that like, these are the only women that merit my sympathy, the ones that were already under my domain, essentially, as a father. But there's there's a maternalism, too. I mean, this is sort of where I'm getting with, with the, the carceral feminism side of it as well. It's like, you know, this idea that there are just some women who are inherently vulnerable that, like, all of us should, you know, intervene in their lives. Like, I think this is some of the rhetoric that we're already seeing about the women who were murdered in Atlanta. The mayor of Atlanta, Keisha Bottoms, who's very, has maybe some more facts than we do, but I'm going to guess not that many more. And she was asked today if the women involved were, were sex workers. And she said to say that would be victim blaming. And, you know, Samantha Cole, who's a reporter at Vice, who, who covers sex work quite a bit, and also sort of revenge porn and other sort of forms of violence that are gender based. You know, she made the comment that it's only victim blaming if, if you think that like sex workers somehow are deserving of violence. And that, that's sort of the other side of it. It's like, she was doing everything right. Well, what does that say then? There are some women who do deserve it because they weren't doing all of the right things. I don't know. I mean, maybe it's naive of me to think of this as like a mass enough moment 
where people are bringing all these different analyses to the fore so that you see these interesting tensions between groups like Reclaim These Streets and Sisters Uncut. You're seeing sort of people hash these things out in real time. Maybe I'm also just getting a particular slice of it because this is the part of, you know, UK left media <laughs> that I'm following. <laughs> you know, I don't know who else is reading Galdem, but like, you know what I'm saying? I, I have some some optimism in this that this is this is the time to sort of start being very serious with one another about what these divides and tensions are and how we could overcome them. Yes, I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend spending much time engaging with the other parts of the UK. <laughs> media, really, for, for your own sanity. Well, sort of on that, in fact, in The Guardian, so there's been some commentary. I mean, I wouldn't say it's a, it's a lot, but there was at least one piece that was raising the question of the role of pornography and true crime fiction in dehumanising women and therefore making these kinds of crimes more likely. And obviously there is plenty, there's no shortage of misogyny within these realms. But what do you make of that kind of argument? I mean, it's an interesting grouping, because I think that the logics of of porn and true crime are, are really different. You know, one of the things I find so grotesque about true crime is that the police are never the, the perpetrator, even when they are, right? You'll get these these true crime stories, they're like, and the cops didn't care, and the prosecutor didn't care, and this guy never got charged. And it's like, hi, huh, I wonder... I wonder who else might actually be responsible in this situation. But it's not a sexy true crime story to be like, and then the culprit was the police, right? It just doesn't fit into the frame of like this perfect victim who we're going to follow along on the story of what happened to her and uncover it. And we sort of vicariously get to be detectives in the story. It just, it's, you know, if you're vicariously the detective as an audience member, then it doesn't really square very well then when the culprit turns out to be involved in law enforcement. And I don't want to spoil some like particular big name true crime stories for people, but like even when you do see that, <laughs> it's sort of, oh, I, you know, I'm thinking of the Golden State Killer. The, the whole reveal there is that he, he was a law enforcement officer, right? And you kind of see like, wow, how could somebody get away with murder for decades? Because he knew how. So uh, porn is, I, I don't even see the comparison. I, 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 and I am not even familiar with the particular thing that you're referencing, though being familiar enough with sort of anti-porn rhetoric in the UK in particular, like, you know, it, I guess it seems very easy to be like, aha, well, women are being exploited in both these kinds of forms of media. And, you know, that leads to their dehumanization. And that leads to, you know, making it easier to conceive of victimizing them. It even might make it sexy. That is true to the extent that all of media is situated that way to the extent that our entire culture is situated that way and it's kind of backwards i think to to start with the porn industry the porn media world likewise with with true crime it, it, we would be so lucky if we could make true crime more feminist that somehow feminist lives would follow i just i think we're actually going to have to aim a bit higher as difficult as this is like i do want to underscore how I don't know, inspired sounds sort of cliche, but like it, it is, it has been something to watch the degree to which people are out in the streets defying the police, tying this to things like the crime bill. I think all of that is hopefully going to be part of the legacy of this story as well as how this has actually changed how people respond to violence. And now to today's second interview. Shadeen Taylor Stone is a black feminist, trade unionist, and socialist. Her book on the neoliberalization of black feminism sold out. How Black Feminism Lost Its Soul, will be published next year. In your article for Navarro Media on the violent shutdown of the vigil for Sarah Everard by the Metropolitan Police last weekend, you discussed some of the quite critical reaction that there was on parts of left social media towards some of the organisers and participants. Could you say something on the nature of those criticisms that were made on social media? 
Yes. So um, in typical kind of Twitter fashion, there's like a kind of cycle of negativity that starts and everyone feels a bit like, you know, being a sort of political commentator of some sort means that it needs to be negative. And so some of those critiques were sort of like, well, you know, people are only caring about these issues now. Where were they last year when we were talking about police brutality? Also, some things which were quite gendered about who was organising those protests. So some people believed it was white middle class women when actually sisters uncut are mostly women of colour and our working class. I think what the sort of critiques that I saw were people who were frustrated because they felt they hadn't been heard before, which is understandable. But then interestingly, I also saw what I, I don't know what, how I describe it, but a lot of white apologists, I would call it where it's sort of because we were in an atmosphere where there's just no salvation at all for any white person to be involved in anything that people need feel that they need to sort of jump in and sort of drag down the people and my opinion on that is you know we are serious about building a mass movement that we are going to need as many people as we want and I was just concerned that this kind of cycle of negativity would actually end up making the movement smaller, which is not what we need if we're going to kill this bill. Some of that criticism has particularly been focused on the Reclaim the Streets movement, which which has been characterised to some extent fairly as a more middle-class, politically liberal organisation. So they've been criticised for their reluctance to call for the resignation of Cressida Dick, the head of the Metropolitan Police. Pressure from Sisters Uncut and other more radical currents seems to have forced them into at least gesturing to the importance of other modes of struggle and, and the importance of black and brown women and feminist organising. But how do you see the politics of Reclaim These Streets? And do you think there's any possibility of a group of that kind working more productively with the more radical currents such as Sisters Uncut? Well, no. I mean, <laughs> that's a simple answer, really. I mean, the, the, my article was really more aimed at the people who maybe turned up at the vigil and it might have been their first protest. That's the kind of people that I was saying that we need to bring into the movement. As for um, Reclaim These Streets, I mean, two of them are um, Labour councillors. So I live in Lambeth, and our council is notoriously right-wing. And two of them, I think Anna Burley is one of them, is a Blairite, basically. So I don't really, I don't particularly see them kind of evolving into being anything else, what they are. And I think their actions in terms of how they reacted to what happened and how they kind of seem to sort of claim the vigil for themselves after they kind of had dropped out of it, I found really problematic. And so they're sort of doing that and sort of, you know, engaging the discussion around police brutality and all of that kind of stuff, but not actually acknowledging the radicals that actually brought that to the fore in the first place. So there are some brilliant people that have engaged with them. You know, Belle is um, one of our MPs up in Streatham, and she's amazing and on the left. So I can understand why it's necessary for her to you know, being the local MP to kind of have a certain relationship with um, the councillors here. But for me, it's not necessary at all. And I think they can actually end up being a hindrance. And I also feel, as we saw with the Labour front bench amendment to Bell's amendment, they end up watering things down to a more sort of palatable, singular politic, rather than the sort of collective politic that we need. And so what do you mean by a more singular politics? 
Well, I mean, if you compare the difference to Bell's amendment to the front bench one, the right of the party one, essentially, I mean, they stripped out everything to do with how that bill would affect Gypsy Roma traveller communities, Black and Asian communities, right to protest, and then just made it focus on violence against women, which is important. It is really important, but, you know, I'm a trustee for a... um, Violence Against Women charity called London Black Women's Project, which is a women of colour domestic violence organisation. And what you often see, particularly around that kind of girl boss type feminism, is a kind of watering down of feminist politics. It's a kind of like making it palatable for the Telegraph and the Daily Mail to get behind. So that's why I don't really have much faith in Reclaim These Streets as a collective but the actual movement beyond that i do so some people who perhaps currently identify with that kind of politics you think perhaps can be reached and can be radicalized well i mean you know from some people start off as liberals i mean i think we've all had a bit of a liberal moment maybe sometime or whenever speak for yourself shitting (laughs) (laughs) well the thing is though i actually my you know entrance into the left was when i was 17 that was through you know, the Iraq war protests. And then, you know, I had some sort of difficult experiences within the left. And I was just like, no, I'm tapping out for a couple of years. I mean, I was still always a socialist, but, and then I kind of was reinvigorated again through a sort of liberal feminism. And then, you know, the socialism starts to kick back in and you're like, well, actually, I'm not so sure about that again. But, you know, I mean, I think everyone has their sort of entry point And if some people might be sort of unsure about certain things, and I think, like I said in the article, it's our job to educate people about those things. But some people are just liberals, and they really believe in that. That's how they're going to be, so... Another thing you wrote in the article was that if you relied solely on social media for a history of resistance movements, you would think everything from the miners' strike to the Black Power movement happened in its own bubble. Could you explain what you were getting at here and its relevance to the movement against police violence and male violence against women? I think that was going back to this idea that all these movements are connected and they all kind of learn from each other. And I think social media has a tendency for people to sit around in their own echo chambers and think that nobody cares about what other people are doing when the evidence of those movements shows the complete opposite. So that's really what I was what I was trying to get out there and really also for us as a left in Britain to start really thinking internationally in terms of how we organize our politic look into the global south look into other places in Europe as well which we seem to not be that connected to which is ridiculous and really start building up those relationships again so I kind of feel like because you know obviously I'm in a trade union but I feel like the trade union movement in terms of that sort of political education has got a bit stagnant it's very UK focused you might get like a sort of token panel about something that's going on elsewhere but the connections aren't really made between sort of workers rights between supply chains between migrants movements And I think, in a way, that's kind of what's holding us back here. So that's the kind of point that I was trying to make with that. 
On some of the historical examples you give, could you talk a little bit about that? For example, you mentioned the Black Panthers and, and also the Grunwick dispute. Could you talk about those a little bit in terms of the way in which quite diverse sectors of the left worked together in, in those contexts? Well, I mean, I used those two examples on purpose because I was trying to speak to two different audiences with those examples. Because obviously there's Fred Hampton films out right now. And people often think about the Black Panther Party just being solely about liberation for African-Americans and end up erasing a lot of the work that they were doing, actually, in terms of the Rainbow Coalition and building that up. You might have to explain what the Rainbow Coalition was. Oh, so the Rainbow Coalition was a coalition put together by Fred Hampton, who was the leader of the Black Panthers. And he went to, he reached out to Puerto Rican community, so that would be the Young Lords, the Native American Indigenous community, and Young Patriots, which was like a white working class group from the Appalachia. And these were all groups that had were either sort of dabbling in sort of leftist politics or were trying to do something for their own communities. And there's some fantastic footage on YouTube where he's like in the deep south talking to some white southerners about you know socialism and about class oppression and talking about those connections and i think just as an example of the sort of power that that kind of movement building can be i mean i think i mentioned in the article that he was assassinated because the state started completely freaking out about it it's easier when people are at each other's throats and saying well you didn't do this for me you didn't do that for me and you do this and what have you as soon as you start sort of breaking down those barriers, that's when the state's going to be quite fearful about its position. That's why I use that example there with Joe being Desai as well. That was kind of bringing in a, a sort of trade union history as well and, you know, getting people to think about worker solidarity across workers that people often think can't be in solidarity with each other is what I was saying about the social media it's become so much around sort of a neoliberal identity politics that people just think it's impossible for these Yorkshire miners to come down and stand on the picket line with Pakistani women who are migrant workers and just you know trying to show the examples of like how it is possible if the politics that are there are the foundation of it. Do you think that tendency to see both historical struggles but also contemporary ones as kind of siloed away from one another in that way that you describe, do you see that as a phenomenon that flows out of social media or, or do you think it's, it's a much deeper thing regarding the whole process of the neoliberal counter-revolution? Well, <laughs> this is what I'm thinking and writing about, actually. You know, I mean, I think we have to think about now that we've been existing within a kind of post-factuite world for what good nearly 40 years now and so there's so many layers that we have to sort of get through when you think about how the sort of post-war consensus seems almost like extreme far left now in the mainstream anyway and so I think the very sort of baseline of how people have seen how things have been successful in terms of I don't know, legislation or getting more diversity in certain things. They've seen how the process of how that's happened and the debate around that has been very individualised around certain groups rather than through a class-based 
politics. So I think that's naturally, when I said earlier about everyone having a bit of a liberal moment or some people having a liberal moment, I think that's why they start, because that's what they see first. So, you know, part of our challenge is to sort of get down in the layers with that. But also, you know, to go on about the Labour Party all, all the bloody time, but I usually do anyway, is to... Um, <laughs> to you know, I grew up in the Blair era, so even... You know, the Labour Party is to blame in, in the sense of the shift in the, the sort of politics of how people think about workers and class struggle. Everyone was an entrepreneur. I don't know if you, if you remember that period. I mean, I remember going to the job centre and there was these silly courses where it was like, well, you can, you can be a consultant. And then you'd go and there was like another consultant teaching you how to be a consultant. And then you would become a consultant for the job centre itself. That sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, this is, the, this is the sort of entrepreneurial culture that some of us have been brought up around. And when I speak to younger people in their early 20s, that's all they know and that's all they see because they, they're sort of post-austerity kids. All they know is short-term contracts. All they know is a gig economy. So it's our work to be like, okay, you know, you can have a full-time job for life. That was a thing and the economy was able to support that. So that's something that we need to fight for and get back to. And just sort of going forward, I mean, where do you see the movement at this point? How optimistic are you about its current trajectory? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I think post-Corbyn, I'm actually quite optimistic. I mean, I think um, this is something that I'm going to be looking at in my book a bit, actually, because I think even though we lost that election, just having those politics within the mainstream, even though it was attacked and attacked and attacked, but the conversation was still there and a lot of people were listening. And I was just talking to some people yesterday who's, you know, first time really kind of being politically active was they were out canvassing on the streets and all of that kind of stuff. So I do think we are seeing like a whole sort of revival of a kind of left movement in that politic. But I think also, you know, like I said, we've had 40 years of neoliberalism. And so there's a lot of confusion, I see, where people are trying to sort of conflate two kind of opposite ideas within the same space. And so there's like a lot of muddled thinking around. But I think eventually, particularly under this government, with what's happening, there was an amazing Sisters on Cut meeting that happened last night where people really started to see the connections between people's struggles, which has always been the politics of Sisters on Cut. And I'm really glad that they did that. And so I'm starting to see people kind of slowly wake up and realise what, what, what's happening within the last like two years so that that is something that's really positive and exciting the danger that we have now which is probably what we didn't have 20 30 years ago is how capitalism seeks to absorb revolutionary movements in such a way that i've never seen before i mean google were doing a sort of olive morris day just ridiculous things like that when she was a communist so but we're starting to we're starting to see that happen within its own time and sometimes it's really hard to then sort of challenge that stuff because it's happening so quickly. So I think that's the main thing that I'm sort of focused on and kind of why I focus on in the book really. 
Just on the Labour Party and the defeat of Corbynism, I mean, do you see a certain silver lining in, in the sense that we are now confronted with the necessity of, of organisation, that we need to organise at the, the grassroots level and we need to be organising outside of Parliament in, in a way which really would have been necessary anyway at some point within the Corbyn project, even if it had succeeded, because clearly a Corbyn-led government would have been under incredibly fierce attack and very likely would have been defeated without such a movement being called into being. Yeah, I, I mean, I do kind of agree with that. I think it's really important for us to keep building grassroots movements outside of the parliamentary process. However, I also don't want to be under a Tory government for any more of my lifetime. Yeah, right. So, you know, I mean, really, that's the only reason why I'm still a member of the Labour Party is just to vote and to just be a thorn in the side as much as I possibly can in whatever small way I can. And I think until we're able to completely dismantle the system as we as present, which I think is, I'm not going to see that in my lifetime. I'd love to, but at the moment, I don't. I think we do need to sort of fight for a more sort of left-wing government. And at the moment, because of our system, the only sort of vehicle we have for that currently is the Labour Party, unfortunately. Yeah, un- unfortunately is the word. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.